In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. my friends it's wednesday also known as hump day depending on how you want to define hump that could be uh something on a camel or it could be an act of lust maybe so are you guys all wondering what the answer to the riddle is remember the riddle we did yesterday it was uh what what is something that not even the strongest man can hold for nine minutes but is lighter than a feather? I bet you that was just driving you guys crazy, huh? Well, is there any, any guesses? Any guesses? you guys think of anything? The answer is your breath because no one can hold their breath for nine minutes. And it's lighter than a feather. Hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. He was asking me about the podcast and, and what I'm going to talk about. And he says, hey, you ever talk about conspiracies? And I said, I talk about them all the time, but I've yet to really kind of get in depth on any kind of podcast and talk about one. So today, my friends, we're going to step out onto the woo-woo tree For those of you that don't know the woo-woo tree, the woo-woo tree is, think of like a large, like a large tree with all kinds of branches, but the branches, as they grow longer, they grow thinner. And my argumentation is like going way out on a thin branch. And the reason that is, is because if you were to go out on a very thin branch, that branch would not be able to, that, that branch probably would not be able to hold your weight and it would break. Thus, my foundation for the conspiracies is like the woo-woo tree. It may not hold up. So let's just, uh, 
Let's just jump in here with both feet and try to cover some ground today. You know, one of my favorite conspiracies is the Magic Johnson conspiracy. You know what I mean? Remember that guy? Great basketball player, number 32. I always think of Chick Hearns when I think of Magic Johnson. Remember every, every time they would be about to win, you'd hear Chick Hearns just say, all right, well, it's uh, the jellos jiggling, the eggs are getting hard, the butter's cooling. Time to put this one in the fridge. This game is over. I think it was something like that. The jello's jiggling, the eggs are cooling, and the butter's getting hard. Time to put this one in the fridge. I miss that guy. But Magic Johnson, remember that when I was growing up, he was a he was a bad man. I think he's still in the I think he's in the Hall of Fame, right? Doesn't he own the Clippers? Or doesn't he own part of the Lakers now? However, when I was coming up, I was in high school, and it was right when like the AIDS crisis was coming in. And for people that don't know, at the height of the AIDS crisis, it was considered mainly like a gay disease or a, a disease for intravenous drug users. Those are the two main groups of which the majority of people inflicted with AIDS, that, that was the two groups. And then one day, there's this big press conference and Magic Johnson comes out and he says, you know, I, and he's standing there with his wife and his teammates and he's like, you know, I just want to let everybody know that I tested HIV positive. And the whole world was like, whoa, Magic Johnson, HIV positive. And it, it kind of shaped... It, it was big news. It was big news. It was all over the news channels. And... Now, there's, there's two major conspiracies here. Let's, let's go over the first one first. The first is that he never had AIDS. He's never HIV positive. He did it as a publicity stunt to draw attention and get money to help come up with a cure for AIDS. That's one, one spot. And, and there's a lot of evidence. Like, if, if it was mainly a disease for gay people and drug users, I'm sure there's plenty of people that would call Magic Johnson a fag, but he's not gay. And he never, he never, you know, participated in that kind of sexual activity. At least, not to my knowledge. He's definitely not a heroin addict, so he's not shooting drugs. However, he... I'm sure that that guy got around, right? I'm sure all those athletes have a number of women they've had sex with. And that number is probably well into the triple digits, if not quadruple digits. It was kind of odd, though. I mean, he's standing up there with his wife talking about... Hey, I got AIDS. You know, the first, his wife's got to be like, well, how did you get that? How'd you get that magic? Oh, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I think it was the fifth, number 507 
the 507th woman I had sex with gave it to me. You know, that's another thing. Like, how does a, how do the women stay with all those pros that just are constantly cheating on them? I guess it's the money, right? Well, anyways, so that's one idea. One idea is that it was a publicity stunt to, to draw attention to and get money for the cause. The second conspiracy theory, which I think is much more interesting, is that Magic Johnson, he was HIV positive. He had AIDS. Now, Magic Johnson does not have AIDS. He's not HIV positive. He no longer has a trace of the virus in his body. Pretty amazing, right? He had it, no longer has it. He had it, he no longer has it. He had it, he no longer has it. That in itself is worth studying. But even more interesting is that his name is Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson. It's a euphemism for a magic penis. This man has a Magic Johnson. He got his Magic Johnson, gave him AIDS, and then his Magic Johnson allowed him to get rid of his AIDS. You see what I'm saying? The guy is a magic. He's magic. Ta-da! I made HIV disappear with his Magic Johnson. That is pretty funny, right? I thought that was pretty funny. If you look at it, though, he probably never had it, right? He probably thought, hey, I'm going to raise money. I'm going to raise awareness. I'm going to help out these communities. And then he goes out and he tells the public, hey, look at me. I got AIDS. But now he doesn't have it in his body. You know you got to think that maybe the insurance companies or can you imagine like you go out and you tell the world, hey, I'm HIV positive. Here's my test. And then you try to get life insurance and they're like, hey, fuck you. You're HIV positive, magic. And then he's got to be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually not. And they're like, well, fuck you. Why'd you say it on TV? Oh, well, I'm just trying to raise awareness for the group. Well, we're going to want you to take a test. You know, I, you got to imagine that there's probably the stigma that comes with that disease probably caused that guy a lot of grief. But, but I, I don't know. I think that he, I don't think he probably ever had it. But I like to think of the second one about him having a Magic Johnson and, and not and getting rid of it. I think that's a kind of a funny one. That's one, that's one conspiracy theory people don't talk too much about. Another conspiracy. How about the New World Order? How about those guys? What the hell is the New World Order? People talk about it a lot. You know, it's all over YouTube. And I think Henry Kissinger wrote a book called World Order 
lot of people talk about the new world order and the deep state. The shadow government. And I, I think that's pretty simplistic. There's clearly... There's clearly forces at work that control the narrative. But I, I would think it's more like... In my, I think it's some sort of conglomeration of intelligence companies. You know, we talked a little bit yesterday about private corporations hiring their own private securities, which are all like their own private armies. You know, if you, th- if you think about corporations, they're kind of like a country in a way. I mean, some of them have... If you think of the corporation as a state and then all its little hubs like cities and all the workers in those hubs as citizens, you know, it's, it's its own economic model. It's its own entity. It's its own sovereign nation in a way. And a lot of people talk about that being the new world order not so much as a conspiracy of countries coming together in order to divide and conquer their people but a new method of governing people a new world order instead of there being sovereign nations there's just multinational corporations. And if you look at some of the Rockefeller literature or some of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations or Trilateral Commission, you know, or even even our own military actions in other countries where we just go in as a military and wipe out the, the people there or clear the way for our corporations to start doing business. You could make the argument that that there's a lot of people throughout government and business that are trying to establish a new world order in that being that business is the ultimate authority. There's an interesting debate I saw a while back between Peter Thiel and Bill Gates and they were debating the economy of the future. And it was obvious to me, at least, that Peter Thiel does not like Bill Gates. You know, he was letting fly a lot of ad hominem attacks about how, you know, Bill Gates is responsible for a lot of problems in third world nations due to his vaccines and his ideas on business and eugenics and there was some really funny lines in there you know there was some one line was Peter Thiel had made a really articulate statement and then Bill Gates followed up to the moderator and Bill Gates says something like this let's just pretend that everything that he said is not true it was it was pretty funny. I, 
I think that I think that's kind of what's when you think about the new world order or you think about the emerging the emerging economic issues I would say that what we're seeing now if I was to label myself as a conspiracy theorist or just give you my hunch on what's happening I think that we're moving towards a more technocratic society and let me define what I mean by technocratic technocratic is rule by science rule by the idea the technocrats believe that politicians are worthless that they are greedy and selfish and easily manipulatable too much willing to give in to what the people think should happen instead of doing what the right thing is where the technocrat compiles as much data as he can and then tries to establish the most not fair but effective and efficient distribution of those resources once he is once he's compiled his list once he understands the patterns of commerce once he understands the pa- the patterns of consumption then according to the technocrat they'll be able to better make our society run effective and efficient. So it's a rule by science. And the rule, the problem I have with the technocrats is that I think they're the same as the politicians. They're both corrupt. They're, bro- they're both easily manipulatable. They're, I think it's just as human beings, we have this we have this blind spot, this sort of confirmation bias that makes it almost impossible for us to truly understand complexity. Too often we we either give up our critical thinking to someone who knows about something or we tend to believe in people that just because they're smart in one area we tend to give them credibility in all areas. But it's not true. Just because you're smart in one area doesn't mean you're smarter in all areas. In fact, if you're really smart in one area, that probably means that you're lacking in the other areas. I would say that, you know, if, if, if we go down the, the technocrat trail and the conspiracy th- minded mindset now that that has something to do with the COVID-19 I think one thing we can all agree on is that no one knows what's going on is it real I know people that have had it I know a guy that was on an, an incubator incubator is that right intubator you know I, I've had people in my family that have had it um why is it that the media reports that COVID-19, it affects more people of color? In fact, it, its numbers, according to the media, on people of color are a multiple of white people. But the very same media then tells people of color to go out and protest. 
in one breath, they say, listen, people of color are more susceptible to COVID-19. Their symptoms are worse. The lasting damage is worse. And then in the very next breath, they say, people of color should go outside and protest and subject themselves to COVID-19. Like, how, how, can they, how can the media say that and then people not think critically about that? It's weird that the hardest hit states are all democratic states. They all have democratic governors. It's weird that Ocasio-Cortez deleted a tweet that said, we must lock down the states to ruin the economy so Donald Trump won't get elected. And, and just so everybody knows, I don't, I don't have a dog in this fight. Like I, I think Trump and Biden are equally silly. You know, if the Democrats wanted to win, why wouldn't they run one of the young guns? There's a lot of things that don't make sense. What about the Wuhan lab, right? Did you see the guy from Harvard that got arrested for taking money from, from China? How about Dr. Fauci's role in the Wuhan lab? How come that guy was studying there? Is that where the virus came from? Like it may have come from a bat, but I don't think that bat with the virus was consumed by an individual at a wet market. It clearly seems like some sort of a bioweapon to me. How can you have a vaccine for the coronavirus? The vaccine people take for the flu works. I don't even know if I would say the. I don't even know if I would say that it works. It's effective, maybe ten percent of the time. They never know what strain it is. They they just are injecting you with something that they believe is going to help stimulate your immune system. Isn't it also funny that pharmaceutical companies? cannot be sued for the harm their vaccine does. So part of me was thinking that the solution to the COVID crisis, if if it is indeed a bioweapon or if it is indeed a pandemic, one of the reasons why people can't go back to work is because the insurance companies can't find out who's liable. Is it the employer that's liable, who's accepting his his employer employees to unsafe work conditions, or is it the employee who, who maybe has the COVID that is the person who's liable because they are bringing it into the workplace? Is it the guy that owns the restaurant, or is it the patron of the restaurant? As far as I know, it's all their faults. And there's really no way to sort out that liability unless, unless, unless you could give everybody a vaccine and then say, look, everyone's had the vaccine, no one's liable, and you can't sue the pharmaceutical companies. Right, then everybody has to go back to work, and if you get it and die, oh well, you got a vaccine. Some people say that the COVID stands for Certificate of Vaccination ID 
2019. Certificate of vaccination ID 2019. And if you look up Bill Gates and MIT, you can see that what they've been working on there, it's called a quantum dot. A quantum dot. And it's like a, it's a lot like a, almost like a little tattoo with maybe like some RFI, like an RFID chip in there. I'm not sure exactly, but it's minute. And once you have that particular quantum dot embedded in your skin, you know, it serves as a easily scannable chip that could be used to track you. It could be used to keep track of your records. It could be used to keep track of, of a new currency if we were to go on some sort of a digital currency. And, you know, it's like, it's like tracking cattle. Except instead of putting that thing in your ear, they're going to put it right in your arm. I think that there is, there's some dark forces out there that really want this to happen. They really think, and it comes back to the technocratic ideas of, of understanding patterns of commerce and behavior. If they could just, if they could just chip everybody, they could see who's spending what, where they're spending their time, and then they could better understand of how to set up a smart city. They could better understand people's patterns. At least that's their idea. That's what they think. And look no further than Africa right now. Like this is actually ongoing in Africa right now. You can look it up and check it out. It's, it's, it almost seems like we're in a movie. Are you guys taking the chip if they bring it in here? Hey, this is the vaccine. You got to take this thing. Hey, you can't work. Hey, you can't get on an airplane. Hey, you can't get a driver's license unless you have this. It's a fascinating it's a fascinating thing to think about. You know it, it all could be it all there's a lot of talk about like the great reset. Is there going to be some sort of like a great reset where debt gets wiped out? Is there going to be some kind of great reset where Everyone takes like a like a banking holiday, or I don't. Even, I mean, how how would that even look? Okay, no one has any debt anymore. Okay, there's no college debt. Okay, there's no mortgage debt. You would definitely stimulate the economy, right? No one had any debt. You could just start over. It's fascinating to think about what's happening on Wall Street right now. It's fascinating to think about, albeit scandalous and kind of demeaning, it's still fascinating. We're printing so much money and just giving it to the banks. Did you guys see the on the PPP loans, the banks made like $12 billion just in processing fees? 
Isn't that just a way of bailing out the banks? Okay, we're going to come up with this this loan scam where we're going to give anybody that wants money, if they can say they have a business, we'll give them up to $2 million and then the banks will process that fee. You know, it's maybe that's the reason why the wording on those PPP loans was so vague is because they needed the banks to get at least, you know, $12 billion. So that way they, they knew that if the banks were going to charge 3% or 5%, then they had to give away at least, you know, however, like a trillion dollars or whatever. So the banks could get, you know, a percentage of that. But if that's how deep we're in, if we're in so deep right now that the government is just giving money to Wall Street and giving money to BlackRock and giving money to everybody, like there's no, there's no way out, right? Like think about people that have been in their house now for... I don't know, five months or six months and haven't paid any mortgage payments. Haven't paid any rent payments. You know, if you live in a tourist destination, how about all the people that work at the hotels? At some point in time, they either, you know, it, it seems like we're getting another stimulus package, but at some point in time, those people are going to run out of money, Right? Or does the government just keep on sending it out? <clears throat> I don't know. Since we're going down the woo-woo tree, there are some uh, there are some people talking about that this whole thing right now is because we're about to get hit by an asteroid or multiple asteroids. Imagine that one. Imagine that they're trying to keep people happy and not panicked. But come September, you're going to start to see things in the sky. And then everybody's going to realize, oh, shoot, we're about to get deep impacted. You know, it, it, on some level, you could think, well, that's why essential business is running. There's not a whole lot of danger right now. However, there's going to be, and we don't want people out. We don't know where these rocks are going to hit. We know there's going to be a lot of them. We don't know where they're going to hit or when they're going to hit. We want to keep people in their houses. We want to, you know, how do we get people to start getting prepared without scaring them? How do we... How do we get people to change their behavior for an event that we don't want to tell them about? And it's worldwide, right? COVID is not just in the U.S. It's worldwide. Maybe Maybe it's just a pandemic. Maybe the earth is like, hey, man, getting sick and tired of you parasites just squandering everything. And it's time for me, the Earth, to let you guys know that you are an evolutionary cul-de-sac. Adios, amigos.
It could be that we're just suffering from stagnation. It could be that there's no new ideas. It could be that all the banks, all the companies have bet big on tech. They have bet big on on the ideas of flying cars and new technologies and they made big bets with side chain derivatives and none of those companies panned out. None of those companies produced the product they promised. That's plausible. It's plausible. <clears throat> It could be that we are preparing for the Great Reset and we already are putting the new system to work. And what I mean, what I mean by that is, have you guys ever read a, <coughs> excuse me, that book, Ready Player One? It's a, if you haven't read it, you should totally read it. It's a great book. It's a fiction book. I know, so we don't like fiction, but you should read it. Um, and it just talks about this boy who in the future, you know, he's, he's going to school, but what's important about the book to this topic is the way he was going to school. He was going to school via virtual reality. So he had like a headset and like a console and then he would, you know, you just, you put on your headset and then you go to your Google meet and then you're boom, you're in the virtual classroom. You know, I don't, I don't have the, I don't have the, uh, the Vive or the Oculus. I got the one headset where you can put your phone in there. However, I've heard good things about the Vive and the Oculus. And I, I can't imagine, imagine if you had a really cool headset and you put that headset on and then you're in virtual reality with kids from all over the world taking classes, like an elective from a history teacher in Switzerland. And if you like that guy, then everybody just puts on their headset and you go to that guy's class. You know, kind of does away with the education in your community, right? Whether that's magic or tragic, I don't know. But it could be one opportunity for like truly global learning and truly a coming together of global ideas. Whatever it is, I think it's important to note that power, be it the government official, the corporate executive, or the military leader, power is never given up. People don't give up their position. Power is taken. Power is taken. It's always taken. It's never given up. It's never abdicated. It's either it's either overthrown or it's taken. And that kind of brings us back full circle to propaganda and you know the printed word and linear speech and linear thinking. Throughout your whole life, at least in the U.S., what are you taught? Nonviolence. Hey, I don't condone violence. Hey, let's try to find a nonviolent solution. You know, it's like 
the people on the top are trying to, from a very early age, influence kids not to fight. When, if you look back at history, the only real change has come from violent revolution. And I, I mean, you can, maybe this is a conspiracy, but it seems like at least the men in some parts of the country have been softened up with this whole theories of nonviolence and transgenderism and soy boys and You know, Lord knows what's in the food and the lower testosterone counts. <clears throat> That's one thing I really, I really admire about Hawaii is it's, it's still at its core like a warrior culture. Like if you're in the, you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, you're, you're going to get your ass kicked. And like as as a man, there's something about that's kind of liberating. Like, yeah, that guy deserved to get punched in the face. Yeah, that guy deserved to get his ass kicked. Or hey, that guy didn't deserve to get his ass kicked, but that was a hell of a fight. There's something about standing up for what you believe in. There's something about not backing down from what you think, even if it's wrong. But you believe it to be right? There's something refreshing about fighting for that. I think we're missing a big part of that. I would like to see a return to... A return to... Questioning authority. A return to the rebellious spirit. A return to violent protection of your ideas. Right, anything in life worth having is worth fighting for. I think that. Which leads me to another point. You know, one way of fighting and the first The first line of fighting is verbal. And I think that's one reason why people aren't taught the trivium. Just to be clear, the trivium is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And it was a a course that was taught to all scholars in ancient times. Grammar we talked about a little bit. Grammar is the ability to 
understand the structure of language. And the reason that's important is because the way grammar is structured is the way your reality is structured. Logic is the ability to think critically. Logic is the ability to forecast potential outcomes. Logic is the ability to forecast intent. Rhetoric is the ability to persuade the people with whom you are speaking. If you can master those three, if you can just have an idea of those three, then it's like having a, a purple belt in linguistic jujitsu. And I kind of want to go, I think in a later podcast, I'm going to try to dissect each of those and try and break it down and try to give everybody a foundation in each. Because I think that that's, we know we've spoken a lot about propaganda and we've spoken about how to recognize it. And that those are great defensive moves. Being aware of what's coming your way is a great defensive move. But I think we could work on some offense. And I think offense would be working with our grammar, working with our logic, and working with our rhetoric. Understanding the means in which we decide to use argumentation. Understanding the logical fallacies, like the appeal to authority or the appeal to emotion. Understanding techniques that can help you in crucial conversations. I guess we could talk a little bit about them now. I don't, I don't have a lot of the, the work in front of me, but we could talk about a few strategies. Here's something you can try today. Whenever you speak, first off, know this. What is the purpose of an argument? What is the purpose of an argument? What is the purpose of an argument? The purpose of an argument is to solve a problem. You see, too many of us, when when we are in an argument, we forget the purpose of an argument. And instead of trying to solve a problem, we try to win. See, it triggers that fight or flight mode and it, it can trigger some emotions and it can trigger your adrenaline and all of a sudden, Instead of staying on topic about what it is you're trying to solve, all of a sudden, an ad hominem attack is thrown your way. And by that, I mean like a personal attack is thrown your way. Something off topic, but it's just thrown at you to kind of throw you off base. And so it's, it's important to be aware of that. If you can be aware that in any argument, the purpose is to solve a problem... That will automatically stop or at least slow and or hinder the fight or flight response. 
So, so you won't feel the anxiety rise. You won't feel your emotions rise. You won't feel your anger rise because it's not an attack on you. It's a, it's a, a lack of understanding between two people. So if you can know that and repeat that to yourself when you find yourself in a confrontational situation, you can better use your words to protect yourself. <clears throat> so that being said, something you can do to practice and use in a conversation and use an argumentation is that whenever you speak to somebody, start like you normally would and then let the other person talk. And as soon as that other person talks, don't answer them right away. In your mind, count two, five, or seven. So I'm talking right now. As I'm talking to you, I'm going to show you what a silent, this is called the silent pause. I'm going to show you what a silent pause looks like. We're talking, we're talking. That was seven seconds. You could probably do five. But if you do that, just try it out today. Just when someone says something, count to five or seven in your head. And I bet you, before you can even say another word, in that seven seconds, the other person is going to say something else. People aren't used, people are not used to other people listening and not saying anything. In fact, that magic number of seven, because you haven't said anything in seven seconds, that other person begins to wonder why you're not saying anything. And it's just long enough for them to start second guessing what they said. And nine out of 10 times they will, especially in a conversation where someone who claims to be in an authority position is trying to say something to you. Hey, you know, I noticed that this thing happened over there. Do you want me to, you want to talk to me about that? Seven seconds. That person in seven seconds will begin to think that their strategy is the wrong strategy. And there's nothing, you know, there's no law that says you have to answer people at all. But try the seven seconds thing. Try it out. Get good at it. Understand it. Understand its power. Understand why it works. You know, and teach it to your kids. The younger people can use these strategies, the better it's going to be. But that is an effective one. The second one, which can be used on the heels of the seven-second silent pause, is to answer a question with a question. So... Let's say you're sitting down with someone and they're like, hey, can you please tell me why you decided to go and do that thing? When you say thing, what thing are you talking about? Are you talking about the thing I did yesterday or are you talking about the other thing? Okay, so you see what I did there? Let's break that down. They asked me a question. I waited seven seconds and then I answered their question with a question. Because subliminally, subliminally, on an unconscious level, the person asking the questions is usually the person in charge. Have you ever heard people say, hey, I'll ask the questions here? It's because they want to be in charge. Usually the person asking the questions is the person in charge. 
So to follow up, if you, if you find yourself in that situation, the person brings you into wherever, they ask you a question, so you wait your seven seconds, and then you answer your question with a question. It's called the Socratic method. So now not only have you kind of thrown them off their base by the silent pause, but now you've begun to ask the questions. And a tip on this part, like a little side channel of asking questions, think about how questions. So for example, hey, why did this happen over here like that? You wait your seven seconds. How would you have done it better? So now you're answering them, you're answering their question with a question, but you're using a how question. And when someone asks you how to do something, it changes your thought patterns. It changes the way the other person thinks, especially if, if they have a script of what they wanted to talk to you about. I'm going to ask this guy about that. I'm going to challenge him on this and see what he says. You've already thrown them off their game. You've given them the silent pause. You've answered a question with a question. And now the how question, that forces them to think from your point of view. It's like a forced empathy. How would you have done it better? Now that person is obligated to tell you how they would have done it. And the chances are they don't know how to do it better than you. The chances are they didn't think about how they would do it. The chances are they probably would have done it the exact same way you did it. And by asking them, how would you have done it? It forces them to think about that. It forces them. And what that does is it takes them off their script and it forces that empathy to be like, oh yeah, well, gosh, I probably would have done it the same way you did. Or a lot of times what happens right there is that the person with whom you're arguing, they get mad right there. They realize that they've just lost the argument and they're way out in the woods. Like they're, they're way out in la-la land because someone yelled at them. Now they're trying to use the same techniques to yell at you, but you have successfully sidestepped and used their momentum against them. So there's three techniques right there. And I'm just going to go over them again because repetition is the mother of skill, right? Repetition is the mother of skill. Repetition is the mother of skill. The silent pause, seven seconds. Answer a question with a question. And try to use how questions. You make good eye contact. It's a great place to start. And those are effective methods of solving a problem, not trying to win an argument. They're all some, those are all things that you should be thinking about to be a better communicator. Those are all things you should be thinking about in order to get your point across. Those are all things you should be thinking about to talk to your children about. All of us will find ourselves in a situation like this. 
And the truth is, the best leaders are the best communicators. If you can understand someone's point of view, if you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, if you can explain your thoughts clearly, then you can better understand your motivations and other people's motivations. There's a lot of interesting techniques that we can use. Neuro-linguistic programming. Part of which is priming and pacing and mirroring. There's also some really interesting concepts about language that I'm going to do some more research on and get to you guys that truly... I mean, they just, they get to the real foundation of what our language is. And, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, we're the barbarians because we just babble all the time. You know, we just, ba, 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 we're just babbling. We've forgotten what, what language is like. We've forgotten how to truly communicate. There's some schools of thought that say poetic verse is in fact the real way of communicating when you speak in a style of poetic metaphor and everybody knows what I mean have you ever read a good poem and it makes you get goosebumps or you read a good poem and you start crying or you read a poem and it it helps you clearly see a vision in your mind like that is language that is linguistics you know what's not written in poetic form Contracts, user agreements. Insurance contracts. You know, none of that's written in poetic metaphor. In fact, I, just thinking out loud here, maybe maybe that is the answer. Maybe that is the answer. But getting back to, I think it's called like a euphonics. And there's a story about, there is a story, I think it's from, Plato's Cratylus. Here's a little blurb. Let me read this little blurb. The primary text in Euphonics is Plato's Cratylus, a Socratic dialogue about the origins of language and the influence of archetypal sounds on the formation of words. It is subtitled On the Correctness of Names. The debate is between Socrates and two other characters. Cratylus, who claims to know the science of nomenclature, and what there is in a name which makes it correct or otherwise. And Hermogenes, who denies that there is any science or inherent correctness in naming things. His contention is that whatever name you choose to give anything is its right name. The third party, Socrates, examines both arguments and comes down on the side of Cratylus. The dialogue is long, intricate, and in parts quite mystifying. In speculating about the original forms 
of names, Socrates teases his listeners with outrageous puns and obscure allusions which modern scholars are at a loss to interpret. He claims no special knowledge of the subject, but offers the view that a name appears to be a vocal imitation, and a person who imitates something with his voice names that which he imitates. There are good names and bad ones, and a good name is one that contains the proper letters. Letters are appropriate or not in a name according as they serve to represent through their sounds the qualities of whatever is being named. Thus, the proper name for a thing is a composition of those sounds which imitate the ideas associated with it. Near the end of the dialogue, Socrates speaks about the inherent meanings of individual sounds. The R sound, he says, is made by the tongue and it's most agitated and it is therefore expressive of rapid movement. It also, he adds later, stands for hardness. The Greek words containing R with which Socrates illustrates his statement justify modern interest in this subject. For the English translations also feature the letter R. They include run, row, trembling, rush, race. Among other examples given are the L sound, which has a sleek, gliding motion sound, and the G sound, which is gummy and gluttonous. I don't know. When I think of G, I think of good-looking greatness gregarious good humor giant hammer George Monty that's just me though that's what I think (laughs) but you guys get the point you know if if there's a proper name for things and each letter has a true meaning then shouldn't you apply that letter's true meaning to the object Another way to think about it is that formation of names or words from sounds that resemble those associated with the object or action to be named or that seem naturally suggestive of its qualities. The example given is cuckoo. And there are many other words such as plop, click, buzz, purr, hiss, hem, and haw, which are obvious attempts at imitating a sound. Similar similar attempts are made in all languages. The question which then arises is to what extent these imitative sounds influence the meanings of the longer composite words in which they occur. A previous essay on the poetical alphabet forms a chapter in a book called Pluriverse. American philosopher Benjamin Paul Blood He begins by telling of a discussion he once had as to why an icicle could not fitly be called a tub, nor vice versa. It is in the nature of its name, he concluded, for a tub to be short and stubby, whereas an icicle sounds spindly and slim. At the sound of icicle, the irrational mind throws up the word bicycle, which is also spindly and often cold, explaining perhaps the popular acceptance of that word to name a pedal-cranked two-wheeler. You see what's going on there? 
the nature of a word. The the letters of that word put an idea in your head and that idea should be congruent with the object that it explains. Right? Like plop, click, buzz, purr, hiss. These are words that are imitations of sound. So shouldn't the names of things that we have imitate It's an interesting concept. And it if it is indeed true, it just shows how far we've fallen from using the language appropriate to explain our environment. You know, when you think about names, you know, remember when you were in kid you were a kid and, and certain people got made fun of. You know, one thing I've noticed here in, in Hawaii, and, and this is a little bit about what we're talking about, and it's about culture, but it's, it's, it straddles the fence between what we're talking about and culture. Sometimes people that come to the United States, they come from like a, an Asian culture where the alphabet's different. And it's difficult for people in the United States to pronounce names of different alphabets. And so that person will take on an American name. There was a guy on my route that was, I think he was Chinese. And his last, he took, he took the moniker. He, his American name was Peter Pan, right? Which every American kid has seen Peter Pan. And so it goes without saying that you know, it's just a lack of, like, he didn't understand this culture. People didn't understand his culture. However, because he, that name is stuck in the American lexicon as like a, as a, the boy who never grew up, all of a sudden that image is tied to it. Therefore, this guy from China is imitating Peter Pan. Like, he, he can't escape that. He chose the wrong name. But it goes, it goes to what I'm talking about as far as, you know, if you're, if you're on the playground or you're naming a child, you know, when you're naming a kid, you got to think of like, oh man, is if I name it, if I name my girl Polly, is she going to be Pert Polly or Depressing Deidre or Bill Blunt or Willie Week or Cheeky Charlie or Big Bertha or Slippery Sid? You know, there's, there's certain words that fit together that can be humorous. And if you're not thinking about that when you're naming your kid, you could suscept them to hours and hours of torment on the playground. You know, you know, this may seem childish and erotic, but behind such trivia lies a feature of language which poets have always more or less consciously acknowledged. Names and words are made up of sounds, and each sound has some kind of natural meaning, expressing and evoking a certain human emotion. In some cases, even the shapes of letters, the serpentine sibilant S, for example seem to accord with the sounds they denote. Academic linguists and etymologists, amid their serious studies of secular derivations and verbal migrations, have no time for such whimsical notions. But to a poet, 
This oral approach to language is all important. Every sensitive writer is concerned not only with the proclaimed meaning of words, but also with their esoteric subliminal qualities, their pitch and ring and the irrational feelings produced by the sound and sometimes by the sight of them. That's, a, that's kind of a mouthful, like, but it's true. If you're in tune with your language, you cannot deny that some words have irrational feelings produced by the sound. Some words have subliminal qualities. Their pitch and their ring, just the very sound of some words can cause you to feel a certain thing. And that's never, it's never talked about. Imagine if you were a kid and at a young age, you begun to learn what the sounds of letters evoke. What if right from the beginning in school, you learned that the letter S, it's, it's serpentine nature. It's sibilant S. Like, look at it. Like, if you think of an S, it kind of looks like a snake. What does the word snake start with? An S. The serpent. Surreptitious. Seductive. Salacious. S. S. That's the sound a snake makes. Like, the letter S embodies that particular emotion that the snake produces. Thus the snake or the serpent is a great symbol of the letter S. Every letter has something like that. And what happens when you could string those letters together to form the right names for the right object? I would argue that if you're able to do that, the world would make more sense to you. Not only would the world make more sense to you, if you could learn to speak in such language people around you would be amazed the sentences you would stitch together the words that you could flip off the end of your tongue would dazzle the masses it's an art form and if kids could learn at an early age how to master that which they can The world would be a better place. Well, I think that that's a pretty good spot for that. That's kind of the beginning of of the trivium that we're going to work into a little bit upcoming. We can go through a bunch of letters. I I do have a little bit here on the like. So we talked about S. Let me read you a little bit about the letter A. Vowels hold emotions and feelings while consonants hold thoughts and the intellect. A Japanese sage gives the explanation of why people falling off buildings shout, Ah! on their way downwards. It is because they naturally wish to ascend. And the ah sound is characteristic of uplift, whether in body or spirit. A gives a sense of alacrity of active, happy, alert, agile, attentive, aware, awake lads and lasses. 
The appropriate bird is the lark, which might thus be addressed. Audacious avian arise, ascend aloft to azure skies, alert to your angelic strain, our aspirations soar again. So you, you can see that the proper application, the proper use of language and understanding grammar, understanding the power of each letter, how it influences people, how it, what emotion it might be able to evoke. If you knew what letters evoked what emotion, then you would know which words to use to tell people to get the desired response. fundamentally changing the way people communicate. In fact, that should be, that would be an awesome legacy, right? What if your legacy was fundamentally changing the way people communicate? I would like that to be my legacy. I would like to help as many people as I can fundamentally change the way they communicate. Not only so that they have better relationships, not only so that their life is more fulfilling, because it would make the world a better place. Well, my friends, it's time for me to get on out of here. I love you guys. Thank you for listening today. Thank you for going way out on the woo-woo tree branch of high speculation. We had a nice bird's eye view from that branch. And as the foundational branch began to break. We jumped down from the tree and landed into the linguistic arts of language. I hope you're able to take a little bit from this. I hope that there was some argumentative augmentations you can make along the way. And I hope that you can change your relationships and change your life and teach your kids some of what we learned. So I love you guys. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly 
that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.